You're now plugged in to the Delphi Podcast. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Delphi Podcast. I'm Tom Shaughnessy, and I help lead Delphi Ventures, as well as host some of the most in-the-weeds and thought-provoking guests across crypto, spanning Layer 1s to DeFi, NFTs, and beyond. The goal is to have fun, but also to dive deep and offer foundational episodes on projects and founders. Also, check out our research on Delphi Digital or miss out on the most compelling research there is. It's up to you. As a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any security or token or to make any financial decisions. Delphi Ventures may hold tokens mentioned, so check out our transparency page in the show notes for more info. With that, let's dive in. See you guys on the other side. Hey guys, uh, welcome to the Delphi podcast. I'm Ashwat Balakrishnan, the uh, Director of Research at Delphi Digital, and I'm here with uh, Avi Zorlo, who's an analyst at Delphi Ventures. Um, we're here with Greg Magadini and Pat Doyle, who are the co-founders of Pink Swan Trading, uh, a data studio that focuses on crypto markets. Um, so Greg and Pat, uh, maybe we start off with, you know, the both of you giving us an introduction about yourselves, um, you know, your, your past lives before crypto and how you fell down the rabbit hole. Sure. Yeah, yeah, that sounds great. Thanks for having us. Stoked to be here. Absolutely. Stoked to be here. Greg, maybe you want to kick it off. I think you've got probably a longer track record. Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to uh, go, go back to the beginning days. So uh, I first got into options in uh, 2008, 2009. And the first person I got into options with is actually a crypto veteran in this space as well, which is Will Warren, the co-founder of Zero X. Back in the day, we were uh, looking at sort of the Investopedia billboards of these guys who made the most money. And some people were having like billion dollar returns. And I was looking at, how, you know, what are all their positions? And it was all options. So that's, the, that's when I discovered options. I fell down the options rabbit hole, understanding, you know, what they are, you know, what is a put, what is a call, what is buying premium versus selling premium, sort of those basics. Um, and ever since then, I've, I've really dug deep into options and have been absolutely obsessed with options. In uh, 2012 is when I first uh, got into crypto by doing a research paper at the uh, university or as a research university um, paper. And basically what I learned then is that, you know, we did, we looked into Bitcoin, we went on the dark web, we checked it all out. And my conclusion was like, oh, this is pretty nefarious. I don't want to invest in this. This was $7 Bitcoin at the time. I thought it was, you know, the government's going to shut it down any second type of type of deal. And um, in 2013, I was a, a prop trader in Chicago and I, I was still following Bitcoin and I saw Bitcoin break above $200 for sort of the second time. Uh, it was $200 was the previous high and it was making new all-time highs, breaking 200 And that's when I bought Bitcoin for the first time. I was like, okay, from a technical perspective, the fact that this thing has not gone away and making new highs, uh, this is this is a good buy. And so that's when I first got invested in crypto. And in uh, 2015, late 2015, when Ethereum first started trading, uh, I sold all my my Bitcoin for Ethereum after learning sort of the value proposition of Ethereum, and and that's when I met Pat as well. Yeah, and when I met Greg, Greg was the intro was my intro into the crypto world. So prior to getting into crypto, I was working in healthcare. I was a data scientist at a device manufacturing company, um, and the the amount of technical work that you're doing in the healthcare space is uh, pretty slow moving. It's pretty slow to make decisions. And when, when I met Greg, he was telling me about Ethereum. And I was like, wow, this is crazy. An open, permissionless financial market. And all the data is publicly available. This is like insane. So I went super deep down the rabbit hole as soon as I met Greg. I went straight down like Ethereum Solidity, Web3 dev stack, uh, started building dApps, doing more research, studying on-chain data. And you know, since Greg and I had met, we'd kind of been sharing research, building tools together in the space since early 2016. And so we've kind of always been been doing research and sharing tools and doing stuff together. So kind of fast forward while we're, you know, deep in working together in the crypto space, just outside of our normal day jobs, we started seeing opportunities in the crypto market to kind of marry our two skills, Greg, from the, the prop trading side and me more so from the technical standpoint and product perspective. So we kind of put our heads together. And then, you know, fast forward to January of 2020 is when we spun up 
Pink Swan Trading with our, our primary product uh, focusing on the, the options side of the world. So that's, that's kind of what kicked off Genesis Volatility as our options product. But that, that's kind of our, our crypto entry story. That's awesome, guys. Uh, you, mm-hmm. I think you guys are, um, you know, true OGs in this space by now. Um, I, I gotta ask, like, are, are you ETH maxis? Are you Bitcoin maxis? Are you? Are you I, know, I know we're all open-minded here, uh, <laughs> but you know, you guys have been in this space for a while now. Yeah, for, from my perspective, I think um, I'm I'm definitely sort of an ETH maxi. So at the time when I sold my Bitcoin for ETH. I mean, it was to me, it was mind boggling that not everyone else was doing the same thing. Like how, how can Bitcoin still have the largest market cap? ETH is so much better. And I, and I think as a trader, I really undervalued network, uh, network effects and first mover advantage, which is what sort of makes me continue to be an ETH maxi now with like, you know, Solana and all these other chains claiming to be ETH killers. Um, I do think the network effects around Ethereum, even though gas fees, all that stuff, um, it's, it's hard to replace. I think it's easier for ETH to find scaling solutions, whether from layer two or side chains or actually ETH 2.0 uh, to, to, to implement those fixes than it is to bootstrap or, or, or move over the whole dev power behind ETH to another chain. Yeah, I, I think on the, the ETH maxi side as well. And I think it's, mine is, mine's more so rooted in like being a builder in this space. When I was back in like 2016, I was same thing. I like didn't hold any Bitcoin. I was I was kind of like, what you can't do anything with it. And I was kind of like fixated on the idea of like you need to be able to do stuff with that. I mean, I guess holding it as as kind of like, you know, digital gold has that narrative, but like in terms of building things around that ecosystem, I was like ETH has such a growing developer community. The dApps are getting better, the UI is getting better, like the number of people onboarding in this space is bigger. So I was kind of always more so on the, the ETH maxi side of the world as well. But still open-minded. I'm open to, to competitors. I'm not shutting it We're, down, but I think there's a special place in my heart for Ethereum. Yeah, definitely. I think I think same here. Now, w- one of the really cool things that's um, sort of manifested from the ETH community are NFTs. Right, like NFTs were very much grounded, uh, you know, on Ethereum. We're now seeing them pop up on all other ecosystems and um, new collections, um, you know, every day. But uh, I, I want to touch on on, on NFTs, um, and especially because of uh, your product, Degen Data. Um, and but before we dive into to what is Degen Data and um, all the cool things that are kind of going around that in the near term, I, I wanted to just know, like. What what do you think was so revolutionary about a, a project like say CryptoPunks um, that you know brought it to its current state now? Um, like what about that that revolution um, do you think uh, is so impressive? Yeah, that's a good question. I think one of the things that's that's kind of uh, that I didn't realize early on was like what the social community aspect of NFTs kind of involves. So I remember a friend of ours and Greg and I had met up with him right around the time we were both starting our business as our friend, Andrew Steinwald. And he was telling us, he's like, NFTs are the future, NFTs are the future. And, you know, I was like, all right, I'll do some research. And he told me to research crypto voxels or crypto punks. And this was like January of 2020. And, and so I researched crypto voxels because to me, it, it made more sense to own a digital plot of land where you can like build stuff and do stuff in it than it did to own a profile picture. And so Fast forward to uh, March of this year, when I start, when we started kind of diving deeper into the NFT space, the project hash masks was the one that kind of kicked us into gear and like started thinking like there's some utility, some like mechanics of like earning interest via some token. And so once I got into that, I started like really going back to the OG projects, like, like crypto punks and things like that. And you start to see like the, the, the provenance of like owning a digital asset is like the, the biggest, you know, uh, innovation in this space. And I think that's where I started, it started clicking. And then after the provenance, you start seeing like the social components, like the community involvement from a crypto perspective. I think as CryptoPunks began to rally, it became like a really big skin in the game type of, uh, investment. Like if you're long Ethereum, like prove it by, by going, 
by buying a, you know, a extremely expensive JPEG at the time, which were, you know, maybe 10 to $20,000. And so I think those, those are the two combinations that I see where they're starting to like unlock a lot of, uh, of value in the NFT or in like the mind of people of like what digital assets are and digital scarcity, what ownership means on chain and things like that. So I think that's kind of, and the, and the CryptoPunk community was like the big one to kind of unlock that. Although there were other projects before that was like the, the first and, and some of the key kind of innovations in my mind. Totally. And I think one of those like landmark events that we saw just a few months ago was Visa coming in and, and buying the CryptoPunk, right? Showing that they're aligned with the crypto community and, and was arguably, you know, the best marketing campaign in history because they didn't, they didn't end up losing any money um, on operating costs. They actually bought an asset that then like tripled in value, uh, you know, over the next yeah. few weeks. It was really quite cool. Um, now, like, what are you guys doing in the NFT space now? Like, you, you have DGen data. Like, what is DGen data? Um, you know, what are people using it for? Yeah, so DGen data is an NFT analytics site. So one of the things that we started noticing as people started buying and selling and trading NFTs was that there's kind of like a lack of resources and there's so much data on chain to support and research projects for like health of community growth, how floors are moving over time, how features of certain NFTs are trading. So my, our thought was like the value of an NFT is really captured in the metadata. And like most of the metadata for these projects don't live on chain. So like, yeah, if you, if you go to Zillow, you can compare two houses and yes, they're both houses, but there's so many features of a house that make it like valuable. And so we're, our, our mindset was like, if you're going to trade these things, if you're going to research them, you have to understand the nuances of the metadata that drives the value. And so that was kind of like our original thesis is, is let's condense, let's take all this historical trade data let's map it to its appropriate metadata and give people those tools so they can start researching like, you know, how the price of like a, a crypto punk with a mole moves over time compared to those, you know, with certain attributes. So that was, that was kind of how we approached it from the beginning. And then as it, as it grew and matured, it became more, there's, you can start to understand more of like, who are the collectors in the community? You know, how many whales are holding X, Y, and Z, you know, NFTs, so it became a combination of like trade analytics and community, uh, like community involvement, how many holders are touching a project, who are some of the most performant flippers in a, in a specific project. So because you could parse all this stuff out on chain, it becomes really fascinating to like understand who's the best at trading this stuff, which projects are getting the most traction, which features are really interesting. So that was kind of the approach. So we, we kind of focus on a small subset of projects that we think have a, a high value or a a higher likelihood of sustainability rather than covering the entire market. Cause for the most part, about 80% of the NFT market trades across like 30 or 40 projects. So we kind of think about kind of focusing on the high quality projects and building tools to support those, uh, those analytics. Nice. Yeah, no, that's really cool. I, I'm curious, like what, um, what are some of the most like interesting data insights that you've sort of seen uh, that you've extracted uh, through DGen data? Yeah, so one of, one of the early ones was, there was shortly after uh, HashMess, somebody resurrected like an old NFT project called Mooncats. And so this was like the first NFT archeological dig, I guess people were calling it. And so while we were, while that project was going on, we started looking through the data and like, because this was like really early still, metrics around like the metadata for these these projects, like nobody knew how to value them. So a lot of people were hitting us up. They're like, Hey, we need to know the mint order of all these NFTs. It's not publicly available. There's no metadata, but it's all on chain. So we basically went through and kind of organized every Mooncat and their mint order, and then just went to OpenSea and bought all the ones that were early, all the ones that were day one, not all of them, but like we had a segment of each. And then fast forward to six months, you know, down the road when the team kind of came, the the team that was running that project came back, put the metadata on chain and started sharing it. The community valued the earliest as like the, the most valuable assets. And so I think listening to the community for like what they want is like one big edge and then being able to parse that out on chain is, is kind of where, where the value add is that we have. And I, I want to touch on, um, you guys have done something like, 
really interesting in, in my opinion. And that's, uh, you, you've actually branded DGEN data around a crypto punk, um, which is, uh, you know, we, we've seen this happen for uh, different influencers or people within crypto, G Money, um, Punk6529. Uh, but you've actually taken like a business and 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 used a crypto punk as the forward facing identity um you know i know you you have some big plans kind of in in the near term for dgen data and and i, and I want to jump into into that uh in just a moment but before we do like what does that mean like what is nft like the the ip around like an nft mean and and, and what do you think like um you, you know it, it enables like businesses like yourself or creators um, to do? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think uh, you kind of hit the nail on the head. Like if you look at like the the reputation that people are are appending to like an NFT, like Richard has like the 3D glasses. I think if you think about 3D glasses, you think Richard. And people are building their personal reputations around an asset. So, you know, the CryptoPunks are kind of like the, the highest uh, tier of, of people building online reputations and skin in the game. And you see the same thing going on with board apes and you see like new market entrances like that. But what we haven't seen is people kind of take the approach of like building a brand around any of these like blue chip NFTs. And so we kind of approach it from the standpoint of, we know the crypto community cause we are crypto native people. And, you know, if we're going to build a product for them, it's, it has to look and feel and act like the crypto audience would. And so we kind of took the approach of the product is the crypto prompt, the, like the face of the product is the crypto punk. So it's it's an interesting transition to be like, these are these are more than just art now, their reputation, their, you know, their IP that you attach to it, their brand value. And there's it's it's interesting to see those use cases. And I think there people are just scratching the surface as to what a CryptoPunk or like other high valued NFTs could mean now and in the future. But I think, you know, the, the most people are focusing on the reputation side. Well, we think like it's gonna be really interesting to see businesses build brands or, you know, drive value from, from having these, these assets. And so that's kind of the approach that we were taking. Yeah, totally. And, and, and now you guys have like some interesting things uh, in store for DGen data. So maybe, maybe we could just hop right into that. Like what's yeah, the so, next few months look like for you, DGen data? So the, so the next couple months actually, so PinkSwan Trading runs two data products right now, Genesis Volatility, which is our first product and DGen data, which is our second product. We've got some pretty big developments going on on the Genesis Volatility side. So we're actually going to be selling DGen data via via the CryptoPunk DLR lab. So we're actually going to sell a punk as a business with all the product and IP attached to it. So we think that this is like a really, this is like the first use case of NFTs outside of social reputation and showing that the transferability of what these things are and access to a global market can provide. And so we think, and we think that this is going to be a trend in the future where where NFTs represent brand, they represent IP, they represent assets outside of the NFT itself. And we think that by selling a company, a punk with a company attached or a punk with a product attached is a, is a really big uh, movement for the space. And we also think it should be a punk. We, we think like the OG project should lead the space forward in, in terms of what these things mean, what they represent, what they, you know, what, what their value is that they kind of derive. So that's that's one of the things that we're gearing up, getting kind of all our our ducks in a row to to begin selling DGen data and more of the details. Obviously, once we have those, we'll be sharing them. But we're really excited by that, and we think like this space, it'll it'll be a really positive movement for this space. Totally, I'm I'm like stoked for what you guys have in store. Yeah, um, and, you know. Sorry. Oh yeah, go ahead, Greg. Just real quick to just tag on, on on the tail end of that. So some of the, the things that we've created around DGen data is we, we've created a smart contract paywall, which allows users to, to basically pay with Ethereum. We haven't turned that on. So we, we hope that the buyer can can turn that on and, and basically monetize the platform if they choose. Something else that we think is pretty interesting 
uh, is that we're going to be selling it for 420.69 ETH when, when we list it. So you get both the punk and the business. And, and we think that the event itself is going to bring attention to the business and it'll also make it sort of the OG punk of the first sort of MNA uh, transaction in, in the space. So we think there's a lot of value accrual from the event itself to both assets. Uh, so it's just something to put out there as well. Mm -hmm. Love love that listing price, man. Spot on. <laughs> um, you know, this is this is like the first time a sale of of this nature is is going to happen. Um, I think it's going to be a landmark event to kind of push us um, into this new design space of you know how do we leverage NFTs to transfer ownership, transfer IP. Um, you know, for that next generation of creators and businesses. Um, you know, who, who are looking to maybe leverage NFTs in this sense and IP, like what are the challenges that you guys have seen uh, in kind of organizing this sale, uh, you know, regarding like NFTs and IP? Because uh, I know that, you know, maybe I, I can only imagine that there's, you know, regulatory pressure or, um, you know, certain rules that may be restricting or bottlenecking you here. Yeah, I, I think that's a, this is like a general, you know, topic in crypto is that there's a lot of gray areas, you know, how can we operate in a way where we're doing things compliant in a compliant manner, but we're still kind of adhering to the crypto ethos of like open and permissionless. And so I think for, for us, the conversations have been around, you know, the more so on the legal components of like, how do you make sure that the IP is transferred successfully? How are you going to do this in a way that's compliant? Obviously, we're based in the US, so we want to make sure that we check all the boxes that we can. And so we've teamed up with actually a great group of lawyers who are helping us navigate that space. But I think the, uh, you know, for the most part, if, if our, our intention is, is to transfer the IP to an interested buyer and not to, you know, a terrorist organization where we can't do that. So I think, you know, that's really the, you know, learning how to operate and kind of like what we see is like more of like a web 2.5 where it's not full web three, it's not web two, but there's like this middle ground of kind of coming to a compromise on how things move forward. That's, I think that's where kind of the space is, is pushing to innovate where you want to go full web three, but you just, you know, your hands are kind of tied based on a, uh, a bar of not wanting to go to jail. So I think as long <laughs> as we skate under that, but that's kind of how we're thinking about it. It's kind of borderline on the web 2.5 transactions. Totally. And and this mm -hmm. is, in my opinion, that first step to a full web three where, you know, we're trading businesses back and forth on the daily um, yeah. uh, and, and all kinds of cool uh, things. We just think the ball has to get rolling. We think somebody has got to do it to get the idea. And we think if it's not a punk, it's a wasted opportunity. We think that's like such a big event for this space. Totally. And and so you're selling DGen data because you're doubling down on on Genesis volatility and you know some of the really great traction that you got here you you have over there um, and just for our listeners we're we're going to transition a little bit now and, and pivot towards uh, the crypto options so if you came here for the NFTs you know there may be a few more uh, pieces of alpha at the end of the episode um, but but we're going to dive deep in, into crypto options um, you know. Ashwath, uh, I'll, I'll hand it off to you um, and kickstart that conversation. Yeah, so so I, th I think the first time we used Genesis Volatility, which is, I think, your flagship product out of Pink Swan, um, I was blown away by the depth of the data. And that's because I was, you know, used to um, broader data sets from, you know, providers like SKU and Glassnode. And I hadn't seen this kind of uh, granular options data um, even, you know, in my experience with, you know, traditional equities markets. Um, and I, I want to get into, you know, Genesis volatility and what you're building there. But before that, you know, I'd like to kind of go through the current landscape of crypto options on centralized exchanges. So, you know, we have a bunch of players there, uh, Bit.com, Databit, um, Delta Exchange. So, you know, amongst all of them, Databit has like a lion's share of, of the market. I think by open interest and volume, they have about 90% of market share. So. Do you have any, I guess, thoughts on, you know, why Deribit does so well where the others kind of um, have underwhelmed? And, you know, any thoughts on just the general landscape of crypto options? Uh, 
Yeah, sure. So um, th thanks for that. I appreciate it. So I, I think Darabit has a few things going really well for it. One is, I mean, they're a really professional system with like amazing like a risk management system and, and liquidations policy. And as a trader, you feel confident having money over there and knowing it's not going to just disappear on you. So I think that's the, the first and foremost important thing. You know, in, in crypto options, we don't have clearing houses like we do in traditional finance that pretty much guarantee that counterparties get paid on their positions. So what they do in crypto options is they do insurance funds. So portion of all the trades goes towards or the commissions of the trades goes towards this insurance fund. And if someone ever uh, goes bankrupt and loses more than, than their account value, uh, then the insurance fund steps in and, and tries to make uh, people whole. So luckily we haven't seen an event like that. And I think the reason we haven't is because of these risk management systems that are really good. Uh, another aspect is really the first mover advantage. So Deribit was sort of the first crypto options player to the scene and they've, co they've constantly grown their offering and, and uh, you know iterated their, their platform over time and, and increased the user experience and stuff like that. So I think that's why Deribit has the number one spot and I, and I think they'll keep the number one spot even with sort of the advent of traditional finance. So right now we have CME options, uh, CME future options. We just launched ProShares ETF, Beto, um, that also has options on it. So so, so now like the, the US market has like a, a more sort of institutional grade solution. Also LedgerX is, is another solution for the US players. But that being said, there's sort of, um, something about 24-hour markets that TradFi just can't compete with. I think in the long run, I mean, if you're going to be trading crypto options and the crypto markets open 24-7, you want to be able to adjust your book on the weekends. You want to be able to capture opportunities on the weekends. And, and having an ETF that just trades normal stock market hours, or at least the option portion of it, um, it's just not going to be this. It's not going to be a sufficient solution. Even for CME future options, which have more of a like six six days a week, twenty three hours a day type of solution. That 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 markets has a lot less liquidity. I mean, it's a huge contract. You're, you're looking at five Bitcoin option uh, multiplier, and, and a lot less liquidity. So it becomes kind of cumbersome to trade these things. So, I mean, ultimately, I, I think that Derek continues to hold its position, um, and, and we'll see what happens with that with that. And then kind of the last aspect of it is that we have CFI, we have TradFi, and then, and then sort of this nascent DeFi option market as well. And, and that'll be interesting to see how it plays out in the future. Yeah, that was an amazing explanation. Uh, and, and I think, you know, we, we, we can get to the DeFi stuff in a bit. Uh, but, you know, with respect to Deribit, I think, you know, like they, they are the, the largest player in the space, um, but we are seeing some competitors crop up that are trying to take advantage of the fact that, you know, Deribit only supports Bitcoin and Ethereum options. So do, do you see this as like a like a, a sort of something that they can compete on and, and, and try to like attract more users and volume by, you know, offering options on these longer tail assets? Yeah, and I think that's actually in the works. So uh, there's two things that Deribit I know has in the pipeline. Well, three things. Uh, I'll get to the last one, the most exciting one. But the, the two kind of simple ones are um, stable coin denominated accounts. So there's a lot of convexity problems to having uh, coin denominated accounts, meaning if you have your account funded in Bitcoin and call it you sell a put option, uh, even if you just sell one put option at like $10,000 strike, as Bitcoin loses value, the, the, the capital base in your account also loses value. And then sort of the liability that you have approaches infinity Bitcoin as Bitcoin asymptotes to zero. So you have this, this negative convexity that, that makes a lot of traditional strategies a little bit more complicated in uh, the crypto options market. So one of their solutions is introducing USDC or USDT denominated accounts. Uh, and I'm actually not sure what currency they're going to go with. And I think there's kind of pros and cons to both. But one thing that I do think could be interesting interesting if we have USDT options is that sort of all the, the fear around Tether and, and the, the collateral base of Tether now will have optionality to it. And so you can sort of trade Tether uh, tether risk on Deribit option markets. So that, that will be something interesting that we'll see how they go. Um, 
And uh, yeah, so, so that's one of them. The other kind of in interesting thing is that they are looking at new option markets. So I think Polkadot and Solana are the two that they're really thinking about. Um, I, I know that Solana is getting a lot of traction. A lot of people like Solana. So, so maybe that'll be the option market that, that gets introduced to Deribit next. And then the last thing that I think is, this is where, you know, who can compete with Deribit on this? This is uh, VIX futures or DVOL index, which is the VIX of, uh, of Deribit, which is the Bitcoin VIX and then the Ethereum VIX. They're going to launch uh, index futures on that. So you'll be, for the very first time, able to trade, you know, DVOL futures, uh, which are denominated for Bitcoin volatility or ETH volatility. And sort of these volatility products are one of the most kind of complex products that we have in, in traditional markets. And to see that come out in the crypto market is something really exciting. And again, what I mean by Deribit's sort of the only one who can really do this is that you need the liquidity, the underlying liquidity to, to create a good, robust index to trade products on. And so that's going to be something really interesting. I'm really looking forward to that. That makes a lot of sense. And uh, if I recall correctly, you guys actually helped Deribit develop that index, right? Uh, we didn't help him develop it, but we... we built some supporting like uh, educational material around it so we created like a, a devolve video that explains really kind of what the underlying concept of this index is and and how can someone trade it and why an index uh, is so good for trading pure vol as opposed to uh, approximating uh, a pure vol via uh, regular options God, yeah, that's my bad. I, I saw the educational video and I, I just, you know, jumped, jumped to the conclusion that, that you guys probably helped uh, develop that index, you know, given your uh, expertise with the space. Um, yeah, so, so just jumping back to the data side for a second, I'm sure, you know, our listeners are familiar with SKU. They're, they're a pretty popular data product. Um, how do you see Genesis volatility, you know, next to these existing players? Like what, what differentiates uh, Genesis volatility when you compare it to, you know, other platforms that have derivatives data like SKU? Yeah, so the way that we think about ourselves versus sort of sort of SKUs of the world is that we really wanted to go deep on the options analytics portion. So uh, one of the main features that we wanted to develop when we first created Genesis volatility was historical data to kind of give context to how these volatility curves trade. So anyone who's not really familiar with volatility trading, one of the big sort of complicated problems is that you have you know, 800 instruments to choose from. And so why trade an at-the-money call that expires in three weeks versus an out-of-the-money call that expires in six months? What's the relationship? And so people look at sort of the volatility surface to make those decisions in, in kind of a consistent manner. And looking at how the volatility surface is priced right now, that's one thing. But then looking at how the volatility surface moves in, in different historical environments, that really helps traders understand what they can expect in different environments and trade accordingly. Something else that we found really interesting that we wanted to make is a set of tools to measure and analyze realized volatility. So something that's kind of true in traditional markets and a little bit less true in crypto options is that realized volatility and implied volatility you know, have a really tight relationship. Realized volatility is sort of the, the volatility that occurred in the past. And implied volatility, which is how options are priced, is telling you what we expect the realized volatility to be in the future. Um, and, and why I say it's a little less connected in crypto options is that crypto options are, are pretty thin compared to traditional finance. And what happens is that the market will move uh, just based on flow. So if a big player just wants to buy a bunch of ETH call options, despite the volatility that ETH is actually displaying right now, well, implied volatility will just shoot up and it will just stay priced high for a while, no matter what Realize is doing, just because there's not enough um, counterparties to come in and price it back down. And so that relationship creates a lot of opportunity for crypto volatility traders. And, and I think that's something really interesting and, and using tools to measure that realized volatility is super important. That's great, yeah. Um, and I think I think you you guys have some you know fairly deep and uh, complex data sets, and I think to the untrained eye, uh, you know some of these things look like rocket science. Um, so now, how did you go about identifying 
which data sets were important and and what traders and investors needed to make you know informed decisions yeah i mean that's a great question so what one of the main things for myself is that you know over the years of learning options it's sort of this never ending game where like you learn one thing and then there's a thousand other things that are, that are left to learn and so for me just kind of having a trading background i really designed some of these features around things that that were useful to me and that were interesting to me so before building Genesis Volatility, I had made a lot of things in Excel VBA and used uh, Excel VBA to sort of help price my own options and things like that. Um, and then building Genesis Volatility, I kind of used that that template, that trader template that I had in order to, to build some of these features. Yeah, that makes sense too. And I guess... Uh... It, it was it was your background with, with with options and trading that basically that ultimately led to your decision to to start building out uh, Genesis volatility. Yeah, ultimately, uh, I used to uh, Pat and I were working at this place called FRST. I used to just consult for them, and, and Pat was sort of the their main uh, uh, developer uh, or one of the main developers. And so basically, what we were noticing is that at that company, we analyze on chain data and try to find trading signals via on-chain data. But working with prop firms in Chicago, this, this data set was still sort of like novel and complex and it wasn't as actionable as people had hoped. But when, when I would come up with uh, derivative trading ideas or options trading ideas, people really liked that. So there's a lot of interesting trades in, in crypto that people weren't doing, such as like relative vol trading. So trading ETH vol versus Bitcoin vol. I think those trades line up once in a while and, and they're just kind of these 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 great trades that you probably wouldn't find anywhere else and so trading relative ball in crypto space is sort of of an uncrowded market and so when we would talk to prop firms and i would come up with relative vol trading ideas that's when people got really interested and they could sort of wrap their heads around okay i've traded relative vol in, in grains so now i can trade relative vol in crypto things like that and so this is kind of the the pull that we had to sort of, you know, build our own thing and, and push uh, the crypto options analytics forward. Yeah, uh, that that's that's super cool. Um, so so you know when we look at these centralized exchanges, you know they have pretty liquid, vibrant order books with a lot of activity going on. And you know when we look at DeFi next to that, uh, you know the activity, the the numbers have just been uh, pretty underwhelming. Um, so I guess in your opinion, what, 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 what do you think has been the main reason uh, that DeFi options have, have sort of underwhelmed? And what do you think you know, the uh, necessary catalyst is for, for, you know, like for, for this activity to start ramping up? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So one of the big problems in DeFi options, we think, is the fragmentation of the market and the lack of like direct comparability between sort of the various protocols. So oftentimes, options traders are not just going to buy a call and walk away. What they're doing is they're trading a call versus another option and, and trading sort of relative valuation of these options against each other. And so we think that this could be sort of a similar um, uh, interest in the DeFi options market, but between protocols. So maybe you're looking at, you know, the Siren AMM and, and you're comparing that to like sort of the open order book or the Hedrick, AMM, things like that. Well, we think that allowing someone to view all these markets from one place uh, would be a really good solution to A, introduce people to DeFi options, because I think a lot of people don't even know about them, especially you know, regular TradFi options traders. They don't, a lot of them don't even know crypto options exist, and let alone DeFi options exist. So sort of getting uh, people's eyes in front of these protocols and these markets is, was one solution. And then allowing people to, to compare the pricing between these various protocols and then comparing that pricing versus CFI and then comparing that pricing versus TradFi, sort of comparing the whole volatility landscape in one place is a huge solution. And then sort of the last element of that is, you know, creating some smart contract wrappers around all these various DeFi options protocols and allowing traders to route DeFi option trades directly from one place seems to be 
to me a really good solution. So if I'm looking at you know what what Darebit's trading on, and I have an account with Darebit, and I'm now I'm seeing where you know 17 DeFi option protocols are all pricing you know ETH options as well. Well, now I can you know put on some trades on the DeFi market, hedge out my risk on the Darebit market, or you know whatever something like that. I think that becomes a really interesting solution and it creates more flow. I think there's this notion that if you took away all the strike prices, there would be more liquidity. I think that's wrong. I, I think, you know, if you look at uh, a great example is that if you look at you know, a call spread, that's, you know, a thousand dollars wide on Bitcoin, you can trade a lot of those. You could, you could put on a 25 by 25 for, for probably less risk than selling one uh, you know, at the money call, so to speak. And so all of a sudden you got 50 contracts trading a volume or 50 units of liquidity as opposed to one. And so having sort of more options and, and, and more markets will, will allow people to put more volume on DeFi and hedge more volume on, on CFI. And we think the combination actually increases volume for both venues as opposed to uh, fragments it further. Got it. Yeah, that, that's amazing. And I'm not sure if I'm allowed to leak this alpha, but you guys are actually building something to help bridge this gap, aren't you? Yeah, it's definitely on a roadmap. It's something that we think is really interesting. We think that the first element is really getting the um, the data component all in place. So the way that we think about it is that having the data solution will really allow traders to get familiar with these markets and see how these markets are priced and basically kind of herd all these cats in one place, so to speak, and then providing the solution for sort of routing orders um, to, to, to potentially the DeFi options market uh, now becomes a winning solution. Because uh, if you just come out with sort of a DeFi options DEX, we think that's a really hard value proposition for the market because all, all of a sudden it's just one more DEX in a sea of DEXs. But if you, if you come out with the platform that you use to trade crypto options from a holistic perspective, and now a DEX solution is, is kind of incorporated in that, well, all the traders are already there and it becomes sort of the sole solution. It becomes your sole point of access for everything DeFi options or crypto options or just crypto volatility in general. And so we think that that makes the most sense. And so right now we view ourselves as a web 2.5 company for Genesis volatility. And our roadmap is to eventually be a Web3 company. Yeah, uh, and I guess um, DeFi has um, like a severe lack of institutional flow, at least on the options end. Um, and I know a lot of what institutions do is just, you know, capturing a spread. So, you know, they'd have two legs to their options trade. Do you think a product like this helps them, you know, enter both of those legs simultaneously and at, you know, at optimal execution prices? Yeah, so something that's really interesting that we that we look at is we look at block trades and exactly what you're saying, like people will put on spreads in size um, in order to sort of trade vol at an institutional level. And so uh, kind of from our analytics perspective, we, we analyze paradigm uh, block volume, which allows traders to see what institutions are doing and, and how they're trading vol. And, and we think that a solution like that in the DeFi space is, you know, soon to come and it would make a lot of sense. And just like you said, you know, people want to trade spreads all in one clip without, you know, necessarily moving the market. They just want to put the size on. And, and so finding a counterparty settling on Darebit or finding a counterparty settling on chain to me seems pretty similar. So, so, so do you eventually see, um, I guess, like the dynamics of, of flow on, on DeFi options protocols mimicking what we see on exchanges like, like Databit and Delta Exchange? So I think from an institutional level, you could make that argument. I think from the retail level, the value proposition of DeFi options is really different. And so, you know, Uniswap, everyone kind of poo-pooed Uniswap until it proved itself. And now it's, you know, just a huge leader in volume. And, and one of the big aspects that Uniswap provides is sort of this flexibility to list whatever tokens you want to list. And so you don't have sort of this gatekeeper at Coinbase saying like, okay, your coin gets listed, your coin doesn't get listed, so on and so forth. 
And that flexibility or that versatility is to me a huge winning point of DeFi. And I think we could see the same thing in DeFi options. Whereas, you know, for the exception of Delta Exchange, most exchanges just have Bitcoin and Ether options. Um, and now if you look at the DeFi market, you could fractionalize the punk and you could create optionality on it. You could create an AMM that just trades fractionalized punk options. Like you're not going to find that anywhere else that that will necessarily need to live on DeFi, which I think is a huge value proposition. And then I think the other kind of interesting value proposition for DeFi is passive vehicles. So, you know, when we look at teams such as Theta Knots or Ribbon Finance, um, they're providing these vaults that allow you to just do, you know, simple covered call strategies, cash secure put strategies, things like that, that just just allow crypto holders to gain yield on their assets in, in a sort of set it and forget it manner. And we think that with the, you know, with yield farming and all those things, the demand for uh, enhanced yield strategies in a passive manner is going to be, you know, a great solution that DeFi can provide. Ultimately, for complex strategies, especially from the retail perspectives, perspective as opposed to the block trading perspective, I think, you know, you're never going to be really able to compete with their bit on trading butterflies. If you want to trade butterflies, I don't I don't see how that's going to be in, in DeFi anytime soon. So I think like the value proposition of a sophisticated options trader remains on CFI for the exception of a few cross flows and for the exception of like, you know, executing big block trades on, on various venues. That's super insightful. And I, I think we're seeing a, a similar dynamic with like perpetuals where, you know, there are different use cases, you know, the, the, the reason you would enter, you know, a DeFi perp versus, you know, a centralized exchange perp sort of vary, um, you know, the, the, um, because of, you know, like underlying variables, like, like funding rates. Um, but, but yeah, so sort of like back to, uh, you know, I guess individual DeFi options protocols. So now we have, you know, a bunch of um, different products with different designs. We have, you know, Open and Hegic, uh, Charm Finance building on Ethereum. Uh, there's Lyra on Optimism. There's Zeta Markets and Psy Options on Solana. Um, I, I guess this is a more opinionated question, but do you, do you guys have like a personal favorite, um, like a design that you would back over the others? Yeah, well, I think there's some, there's some really interesting aspects going on. So uh, we've been working with Siren. Siren created something that's pretty interesting, which is, sort of a, a black shoals priced AMM with a slippage factor. And so, you know, the slippage factor accounts for sort of volume driven pricing. We think that's a, that's a really unique insight in, in, in their design. Uh, Pods is another one that's pretty interesting. Pods wants to offer sort of, uh, you know, altcoin optionality. And one of their, their sort of design concepts is that they take, you know, ETH volatility surface uh, and then overlay that into sort of realize vol of an altcoin and then set that as the initial pricing of their AMM and then allow the market sort of to adjust the pricing over time. I think that, that that's a really unique solution for altcoin pricing. Um, and, and then again, I think sort of these vaults can be really interesting. So like Open has great infrastructure for essentially um, ribbon finance to allow covered call selling strategies. And then you have sort of the other side of the market, which which is you know mostly QCP, buying that that optionality and, and allowing them to get sort of a source of vol for, for their overall market making books. And that and they're the perfect example of someone who's going to be you know trading various venues and sort of making these markets all over the place. And so I, I think that sort of order book style for ribbon building on top of open is, is really fascinating as well. So those are the, the three protocols that we've had the most discussion with that we're really interested. Uh, Zeta and Lyra are, are two really cool ones too. We, we haven't dug into their stuff yet, but we've, you know, chat with our teams and they have, you know, really talented teams and stuff like that. So ultimately we want to, you know, work with all these protocols. A big, a big um, component of that is building education material around DeFi option protocols themselves. So one, allowing people to understand, you know, how these protocols work sort of at the smart contract level and also how to trade these protocols and, and what kind of risk and pricing is going on within them. 
that makes a lot of sense. Um, one slightly higher level, you know, macro-esque question I had about, you know, uh, crypto options was, you know, I, I think in traditional markets, if you look at notional volumes, um, options eclipse that of, you know, futures. Uh, but, but if you look at crypto, you know, perpetuals and futures are the most traded instrument. Um, do, do you think that, you know, in the future, we're going to see crypto kind of converge to the, you know, the trends we see in the traditional derivatives markets? I do think so. I mean, we're both, Pat and I are both very long on, on this market uh, for the future. And just kind of, as you pointed out, another way to measure that is, uh, you know, the open interest, notional open interest of the options versus the market cap. So Bitcoin notional open interest is 1.5% of the market cap, something like that. Whereas SPY, which is the S&P 500 ETF, has 200% notional open interest compared to the market cap. And so, you know, you could just think about it. Wow, like this thing could grow, you know, 130x uh, just to match Stratify. So we think this market is still really, really young. Uh, it's just the beginning. And there's so much room for upside growth just from CFI alone, let alone sort of DeFi um, that we think, yeah, it's, it, over time it's going to converge and, and mimic, you know, probably similar levels to, to Stratify. And Greg, I, I'm definitely going to need your help in coming up with more sophisticated strategies for, for crypto options because I'm a bit more smooth brain degen. I'll, I'll probably be aping naked calls and puts. Um, so I'll, I'll definitely need your insight there. Um, sure. You know, just want to kind of bring everything together and, 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 and make some, uh, you know, we'll, we'll have some closing questions, a few rapid fire ones. Um, but you guys are like, you know, one of the best builders that I've met in this space, um, especially on this data side of things. Um, and, you know, the way that you're thinking about options and, and also are, are so crypto native and involved in NFTs, I think you guys have like a really valuable insight to like new builders um, in this space. Um, I'm wondering like if you have any advice or insights uh, that you could give some of our, our, our builder listeners uh, here today. Uh, about like building in the crypto or, or, or options or NFT or data space. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think from, from the building perspective, like I think the biggest piece of advice that I could give is like, get started. If you have an idea, put stuff out there before, you know, don't wait for it to be perfect. Put, you know, put B minus work out there, get feedback, you know, listen to the community. Everybody wants to see this space grow. So the more that you can give and help drive that traction, like that's what I would do. And then if you ever like these, the crypto community has so many good resources and people want to help and contribute. So like the more you put out there, kind of the more you get back, that would be the one thing that, that I would share. Yeah. Kind of similar to that vein. Um, one of the things that actually Pat's the guy who taught me this and I, and I really appreciate it is that, you know, get, get something out there first, refine later. Don't go for perfection. And, and wait for perfection to release, release now and then refine over time. And I think this is ex especially true, like squared true to in the crypto space, because crypto is moving so fast that timing becomes such a crucial component. And you wait a month and like, you know, the timing component's gone. So you have to be quick to get your thing out there and then just make it better over time. Like have it out there, build a reputation while, while your product is out there. And, and continue to make it good. And I think that's a, a, a really good winning strategy. And from a trader's perspective, uh, as a trader, you're often rewarded for doing nothing and being patient. And so if you just look at the market and, and really pick your, your points and not like get bored and put on a stupid trade because you're bored and now you're worrying about some trade that you even like in the first place, uh, it's way better to be patient. But when you're like running a company, it's quite the opposite. The company is either dying or it's growing. There's no like in between idling spot. So you, you're either growing or you're dying. So just sitting and waiting is quite like the the opposite uh, mentality that you would have as a as a founder. Yeah, those are, those are great uh, insights there. It's uh, I've I've heard it many times before, and I'm, I'm stealing this from somebody who I, who I can't remember their name. But uh, it, it's not timing the market; it's time in the market. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and, and I think you guys have done that quite well. And, and, and that's why you've successfully been able to, uh, in my opinion, be able to go from building something, you know, in the NFT space, 
uh, all the way, you know, moving to the other side of the spectrum, maybe to to you know, crypto options. Um, now, I've got a I've got a few rapid fire questions to to ask you guys. These will just be short, you know, short answers. Uh, Going to preface this: none of this is financial advice. Um, so, you know, please do your own research. Uh, the first one. Uh, if you had to hold one of these projects for the next five years, what would they be? CryptoPunks, Fidenza, or Bored Apes? I would go CryptoPunks. Greg? Oh, man. Uh, can I put gods and chain cards in there? Is that part of it? Just <laughs> pumping my own book there. That's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not the well, NFT expert that, at That's all. great. That, that, that goes in the second one. Favorite non-blue chip NFT project right now? Yeah, uh, so mine would be, there's, uh, I, I would say mine is this, there's a new like movement in the AI art movement. There's a project called Braindrops. I think Braindrops is really interesting. Yeah, for me, the only NFT I really invest, well, there's two that I invested in. One was ENS domains. I basically bought like all the volatility related ones. So yeah, doxing myself, but there they are. <laughs> and then the other one is Gods and Chain. To me, I used to play Magic the Gathering when I was like in third grade and I thought it was such a cool game and the cards were so cool. Um, and so when Gods and Chain came out, I saw a few years earlier how popular Hearthstone was and like how my nerdy friends would just play that all the time. Um, and so to me, I was like, dang, this is gonna, this is gonna be just as good. And so. Now I'm playing Gods and Chain. Oh my God, spending so much time. It's ridiculous. Don't, don't get started. Just buy the cards and don't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Greg will buy them later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Greg, if you had to take one crypto options trade today, what would it be? Yeah, well, I keep tweeting about this. I keep chatting about it in the Vault Pit chat that we host. <clears throat> I, you know, I think this is such a layup. I mean, I think December 31st Vol is so expensive in ETH and Bitcoin, but ETH especially. I mean, you're looking at kind of spot, like realized vol, 10 day realized is like 76, 30 day realized is 67. And then December implied is like, you know, 105, 110. And to me, it's just like, that is such a layup. And, and so it's a safe way to play it. It's just, you're sitting on ETH, sell some calls against it. Um, that's, that's kind of the safe way to play it. Uh, the, the kind of other safe but more complex way to do it is like, I would I think some some butterflies could be pretty interesting, you know potentially you know forty five five thousand fifty five hundred butterflies could be interesting, and then if you're a little bit more yolo and you want to max some yield I think like one by twos could be cool too, uh you know buy forty buy forty five hundred sell two fifty two hundred type trades I just think ball is going to collapse and and um, I think that's that trades a layup. Nice. Alpha alert right there. Uh, and, and closing one, Pat, what's the best skate trick you can pull off? Oh, man, that's a good one. Actually, probably my, my best. And I'll, I'll send you the clip. But I did a, a kickflip back tail down an eight stair handrail at the park down down the street from my house. So, nice. yeah. Sweet. We'll so, have to end it. I don't know if I yeah, I don't know if I've got those anymore. I think I'm getting a, <laughs> a bit too old. But but yeah. Awesome. Well, guys, this was this was fantastic. Before we kind of wrap everything up, um, you know, where can people find you both on on you know social media, um, and and where can you know some of our listeners maybe find out more about the DGen data sale that's coming up? Yeah. So on Twitter, you can follow uh, DGen data, DGen data, at DGen data. And then our website is dgendata.io. In terms of details around the sales, we're just finalizing kind of the terms and everything. And we'll have a, we'll be sharing a bunch of new uh, information in the coming weeks. We think early first week of December is when when you'll be able to kind of get some more details. But we're really excited by that. And then on the GVAL side, you can follow us on Twitter at Genesis Vol. We have a weekly sort of volatility wrap up newsletter that we put out, and that can be found at genesisvolatility.substack.com. We have a YouTube channel with some educational material. You can just type in GVOL in the search bar. And then lastly, the product itself is GVOL.io. Awesome. Well, it was a pleasure chatting with you guys as always. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks yeah. for having Thanks, guys. Yeah. <laughs> hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the podcast. 
If you enjoyed it, please support the show by hitting subscribe on iTunes, writing a review, or sharing this episode on Twitter and LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our next episode out soon.